Father, once again, we come to your word, um, worshiping together in song and at your table and in prayer and in scripture reading, and now we come to your word to, to hear from you and, and to, uh, to journey with those who have journeyed with you before us, to be connected and drawn into the community of faith, the followers of, of a God who revealed himself that we might know you, that we might see you, and then revealed your Son, that we might be saved and redeemed and transformed into your kingdom. Lord, we ask now that your Holy Spirit speak through your word, whether it's here um, in the main service or downstairs with the children as they have their lesson. Lord, that you might be uh, honored and glorified and magnified in our midst. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And we'll go ahead and dismiss the kids. Let's head down to God's backyard. So for the, for the last seven weeks, uh, we have been looking at big ideas. Uh, the big ideas of the Bible. What did the, uh, what did the authors of Scripture believe that, that God used to give us what we have? And we, we've talked about the nature of God, the sovereignty of God. We've talked about the nature of sin. We've dealt with fatherhood and, and, and families and connections. And, and last week we talked about uh, Scripture, how God reveals Himself, how we know what it is that God has revealed. And this morning I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up this series uh, with uh, probably the last big idea that enters into the, the, the discourse of the biblical authors um, and that is the topic uh, of the chosen one, or the Messiah. Uh, and and we, because we are we're Christians, we have a tendency um, to think of everything in terms of that. But uh, I want to I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what the word Messiah or Christ means, uh, how it was used, and then how it it was transformed. Uh, as biblical history advanced um, to come to mean uh, what we think of as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in order to do that, I want to start um, with a, a, an episode in 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, uh, Samuel was a prophet. Um, some people consider him the first prophet uh, of Israel. Um, Moses might debate that since he was called a prophet and he lived quite a while before Samuel. But, um, but uh, Samuel is, um, is, he's got, you know, two books of the Bible named after him, so he's pretty important. Uh, and this is a moment uh, in history uh, around the year 1000 B.C. when the, the, the politics of the, the world were shifting. So, so very briefly, and I, and I will not dwell on this, something happened around the year 1200 B.C. No one's really sure what it was. A natural disaster, or a, you know, some kind of earthquake, tsunami, um, or something. We don't really know what happened, but all of the major political entities of the, of the Mediterranean world uh, collapsed all very shortly in a very brief time. Um, the Egyptian New Kingdom collapsed. Uh, the 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 pop the 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 the, um, 
trading monopolies that existed in Crete and Cyprus collapsed. The Neo-Hittite Empire collapses. Things just fall apart. And we call that the Late Bronze Age Horizon um, or the, the Bronze Iron Transition. What happened then when, when those powers that had exerted so much influence over a, such a large region of the world and such a populated region of the world, as they started to fall away, uh, it, basically petty kingdoms started to rise up. Small kings, small landholding kings who claimed that they were a king and no, there was nobody to contest them. So, I mean, what does, it, what does it take to actually be a king? Well, you say you're a king and you beat everybody who says you aren't. I mean, that, that's really what it takes to be a king. I mean, think about it. It's not, it's not, like, it's not like people are zapped and made kings. Um, they, they rise up, and the Hebrew word melech, which is the word that, that king, it, we translate as a king, it really means strong man. It means uh, the guy that nobody else could beat. So, um, so these petty kings start to rise up. Well, the people of Israel who are living in more or less what is the modern day of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, and, and we're not talking about a huge, huge population, um, but these, these people are living in, um, and, and we know this from archaeology, we know the, what they look like. They're basically living in family compounds, taking care of their, their herds of sheep and goats and their olive trees and, and their, their vineyards and things like that. And they're, they're pretty much living in their family units, um, large extended family units, what we would call a village, maybe 50 to 150 people uh, living together, um, marrying outside of the village, connecting, and there's this stu- kind of stuff going on. Well, when you're living in that kind of a situation and uh, petty kings start popping up and saying, you should serve me because I'm a king, and you're not really prepared to say no, um, you start to say, hey, maybe we should have a king. Maybe we should have a strong man that can take care of this for us. Um, and, and early in 1 Samuel, uh, the people of Israel, the, the Israel people, uh, really the people of the hills of, of, uh, of Ephraim and, and Manasseh, um, they, they, go to, uh, they go to Samuel, who is called a prophet or a seer, and he's, he's blessed with the ability to make decisions and judge um, from God. And they say, they say to Samuel, they, they say, we want a, we want a king um, because all the nations, all the other people have kings and we're starting to feel threatened. We want a king. And, and so initially Samuel says no. Then God says, no, no, I'm going to give them a king. They're going to wish that they hadn't asked for it. And they gives him a king named Saul or Saul. Um, and Saul has all the makings of a great king. He's taller than everybody else. Um, they think he's humble. He's actually arrogant and afraid. Um, he, he is a great warrior who always manages to have somebody else do the fighting for him. He's, he's, he, on paper, Saul looks like a great king. And yet he does nothing but mess things up. And, and I'm not going to get into the whole situation, but the reality is he is, um, it's kind of like uh, the end of the dark night. I'm a huge Batman nerd. Um, and so at the end of the dark night, uh, Gordon says, uh, Batman is the hero we need, not the hero we want. All right, or something like that. And, and Saul is kind of the hero they wanted, but not the hero they needed. And Saul rules for a while, and he makes all kinds of mistakes. I mean, he just does all kinds of uh, dumb things that he doesn't repent for. And then God says, all right, now it's time. I'm going to give you this, the king 
that Israel actually needs. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, he's got this whole conversation about how he can't go because Saul will try to kill him. You know, if you're loyal to somebody that you're afraid to do things because he might kill you, your loyalty might be misplaced. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, but anyway, he says, so God says to Samuel, he says, well, take a heifer with you um, and say, I have a sacrifice. And then invite Jesse to come to the sacrifice. Tell him to bring his sons. And that's what he does. He goes to Bethlehem. Um, now Bethlehem means the house of bread. Um, it, it's an it's a ancient city. Uh, Bethlehem is, a, it's probably about, it's about, uh, maybe 10, 15 miles away from Jerusalem. It's actually much closer than most people think it is. Actually, it's less than 10 miles. Um, it depends on whether... It, Bethle- it, eh, I'm not going to get into it. Driving there in Israel now takes much longer than it should because there's Palestinian-held land and you have to go around it. Um, anyway, uh, he says, so he says, invite him in. And, and so uh, Samuel, in verse 5, he comes to the city. He tells Jesse to consecrate himself and his sons. And in verse 6... They come to Samuel. Samuel sets up a, a meal around the sacrifice. Um, and they, that's Jesse and his sons, they, they came. And he, Samuel, this is verse 6, he looked on Eliab, who's the oldest of, Sam, of uh, Jesse's kids. He thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, but because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward heart, of outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? Probably should have led with that one. Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. He's holding them hostage by not feeding them. This is a very smart leadership move. And he, he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy. This is David. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Uh, this is the anointing of David, if you haven't caught this. Now, it, it, you read Samuel, it's interesting. This happens, um, and David is anointed king of Israel, and he is probably a teenager at this point. Now, by teenager, I do not mean that he's some scrawny little thing. Um, David, at one point in his life, uh, David, A, takes on Goliath. He fights Goliath. Um, within a couple years of this, and Goliath is an enormous man. Um, a couple a couple days ago, uh, a thing came back. I wish I still had it. I had made a spear to represent just how how tall Goliath is depicted as, and the descriptions. And he he's a big man, but David takes him on. Um, David is a slinger. Now we know from archeo- archaeological remains um, what slingers were were capable of. Now, I'm not t- when you talk about a sling, today we talk about like a hobby. Somebody goes, mm-hmm. all right. Um, a slinger in the day of David was basically the artillery of an army. 
Uh, slingers didn't throw little, little pebble rocks. They threw stones that were massive, all right? Um, stones big enough to crush a man's skull. And they would take those things, they would put them in, they would make their own slings. And we have the remains of slings from Egypt and Mesopotamia. Um, they, it would have a, a, like a, leather, a, a, a basket, either leather or woven or, or wicker, and it would be attached to two very strong braided straps. Not rope, but leather straps, um, because leather stretches a little bit. And the slinger would take that thing in his hand, and he would start moving it around his head. Now, if you've ever seen a shot putter throw things, shot putters do not go... All right? Shot putter gets that wind going, and they're really accurate with it. Um, the scriptures actually describe the people of Benjamin that they were able to split a hair with their sling stones, that they were so incredibly accurate with it. Um, and David is a slinger. He kills a lion. He kills a bear. This is not a kid to be messed with. And, and we know from archaeological records, we know that the slingers had to be incredibly, incredibly fit. You, they were not little guys. They were big guys. You think about how much is required to swing a stone this big in a, in a sling around your head and release it at exactly the right time that it is an accurate weapon. In fact, later on in David's life, he uses Goliath's sword as his own sidearm. I don't know if you've ever used a sword. You do not carry around swords that are too big for you. It's a bad idea. David is so intimidating that Goliath's own cousins from his hometown become his personal bodyguard. David is not the little boy you see in your family Bibles. Dressed in a little loincloth, standing in front of him. David is an intimidating person when he becomes a man. And as a boy, he is no, nonetheless uh, impressive. He's described as being beautiful. Uh, by the way, uh, just so you're aware of, uh, did, did Jesse know that David was a tough guy? I want you to keep in mind that David alone is guarding the flocks of his father by himself. You don't leave the sheep with somebody that's not capable of defending them from the wolves and the bears and the lions. David is an impressive, impressive young man. In fact, the reason that Jesse probably doesn't bring him is he knows that Samuel's going to pick him, and he doesn't want him to. We find out later that David's brothers are not the greatest group of guys. And so finally, you know, David, Jesse waited eight sons to get the right one, and he's not about to let Samuel have him. Anyway, uh, David uh, is a musician. He's all these kind of things. He's an incredible guy, but he is anointed as king. And this is really the moment where anointing takes on an interesting character in the biblical narrative that will eventually lead us to Jesus Christ. Now, Christos, the Greek word Christos, means anointed. It's used to translate the Hebrew word meshach, which means anointed, all right? Um, and so when we get to, when we're reading Jesus Christ, just so you're aware, all right, Jesus Christ means the anointed salvation of God. That's what Jesus Christ means in Hebrew, all right? So he is, he's, uh, he's you know, God is very, very, explicit as to who Jesus is. Um, but Christ is this idea, it's this concept of anointing. But what is anointing? And people go, oh, I know what anointing is. You take oil, you put on somebody. That's, okay, that, that's not um, all there is to it. Anointing is the human recognition 
of divine selection, of divine purpose. The function of anointing in the Old Testament, and it appears, the, the verb to anoint, meshah, appears in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament 140 times. And most of the time, it is about tools and instruments and garments for the tabernacle, for the temple. The idea being that something that looks ordinary to anybody else is chosen by God to do something special, to serve a special purpose, to be a tool in the hand of God, an instrument in the hand of the Lord, and so it is anointed so that everybody can know that it is chosen, that it is special, that it is unique. And when we read about David here, um, we, we read about God taking someone who maybe everybody thought had a lot of potential. I think that everybody looked at David and said, he's got a lot of potential. He's going to be more than just the youngest of eight brothers. Um, there's going to be something going on with him. But Samuel comes and anoints him and declares, not only do we think he's special, we know that God has chosen him. And so that's the purpose. In the Old Testament, that's the purpose of anointing. It is a human act that demonstrates divine selection or divine choice. So when we talk about someone being anointed, it is someone who is being chosen. Now the rabbis, the, the, the rabbis of the first century noticed something very interesting about the way that anointing works in the Old Testament. I'm going to read to you a section um, from the passage of Sanhedrin in the Talmud. I know you guys are all super excited about that. Um, but the rabbis struggled with the question, why are some kings anointed and some are not? God, God chooses to anoint some kings. He chooses to anoint some priests, but not all kings, not all priests. And this is what they said. They anoint kings only in account, on account of civil strife. Why did they anoint Solomon? Because of the strife of Adonijah, there was another son of, uh, of David who was competing with Solomon. And Yehu, I'm sure you guys are all excited about Yehu, because of Yoram, because there was another king sitting uh, who was a descendant of, uh, uh, he was uh, leading the country into uh, idolatry, and so he had to be deposed and a new king put in place. And Joash, Joash, because of Athaliah, that was his grandmother, I won't get into that. Jehoaz, because of his son Jehoiakim, his brother, who was two years older than him. A king requires anointing, but a son of a king does not require anointing. In other words, anointing is when God has to change course. The ordinary process of the way that we think that things should go, and he is going to take us down a better road, a true road. Because the, the system at the moment is, is corrupted. It is, it is messed up. It, and so God uses anointing to say, this has to come to an end. This must take its place. And so Saul was king. But God says, God, God rejects Saul. And he says, I'm going to choose a new king. And it's not going to be Saul's son, Jonathan. Now this is interesting because Jonathan... Next to David, Jonathan is the coolest guy in the Old Testament. The two of them together were a formidable force. In fact, Jonathan, and not to bore you, but I just, I love David. One of the great things about Jonathan is he's the son of Saul. He's entitled to be the king. When he recognizes David's anointing, he tells David, I wouldn't take the crown if it was offered to me on a platter. 
you are the king that God has chosen. I will serve you. What an incredible testimony of Jonathan. And unfortunately, his father's foolishness gets Jonathan killed. Um, but then David honors his son. Uh, and there's a, a whole other story that goes on. You'll have to read it. It's in 2 Samuel. It's worth reading. Skip over all the names and stuff in the other books. Just get to First and Second Samuel. Those are the cool stories. Um, anyway, um, this, this idea that God would anoint um, someone in this moment, the rabbis noticed that, okay, God doesn't just anoint just a regular process. God doesn't just, okay, well, you know, this king has a son, so that king has a son, so we anoint him. That's not when the anointing appear, appears in the Old Testament. It appears when God is changing human course. Now, not that God is changing course, because God doesn't make mistakes, but that the human, the, the human situation that has been set out plays itself out, and God now has to change. He has to change leaders. It's time for the swap. This idea that anointing is unique rather than hereditary, that it is something that God has to do, um, that, or not God has to do, but th something that God does when the normal process of things um, is going to take us down the path of sin and destruction. This idea then starts to feed into the thinking of the people of of, uh, that are writing the Old Testament, an anointing increasingly becomes, this idea of Meshach, the, the anointed one, it increasingly becomes, comes not about the person that deserves a job, but the person that God chooses for the job. There, I mean, is anyone else ever annoyed when people want you to do things because they think they deserve you doing it? Like, you get a new boss, right? You get a new boss, and it, you can always tell. Some of us have had great bosses. I worked in corporate America long enough to have tons of fantastic bosses and a couple bosses that I wish I never knew again. Um, you can always tell the difference. Usually, the bosses that I knew I was going to be able to get around, along with they came in, they said, hey, how are you? My name is so-and-so, I'm the supervisor, this is the plan, this is what we're going to do, it's going to be effective. You know, and when you ask them questions, the answer to the question is, well, here's the plan, we'll work the plan, study the plan, understand it, this is our purpose. I always knew I was going to be in trouble when I got a boss, and I asked a question, and his response was, because I said so. I could be wrong. But I figure our business is probably in the business of making money and being efficient doing that. If I knew how this was going to make money, I would want it to do it because when the business makes money, I get money, right? Because I get paid and all this stuff. Uh, you do it because I, I, I told you to. I had a boss. Um, I used to wear, I, you guys, you've been around a long time. You know I like to wear short sleeves. I do not like, I don't like this. When this happens, I feel like Dwight Schrute, those of you from the office, he hates long sleeves. Um, but when my arms are trapped in a sleeve like this, I, I feel straight-jacketed. Um, now, one thing, it's really hard for me to find shirts that fit me because I'm built like a, an orangutan. So the, so the shirts that fit my neck, the sleeves are down here, um, you know, kind of a thing. It's really, it's re I just don't like long sleeves. I don't like wearing suit jackets. I can't understand why we wear an outside garment inside. No, no knock on anybody that wears it. I just don't, I don't get the thing. I like to be free. I like to be able to move. I like to, if necessary, be able to run away. That's why I don't like dress shoes. Um, you know, I, I, I just, 
I, you know, my dad one time said it's a sorry set of feet that lets a, foot, uh, lets a nose get bloody. Um, I, 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 like to, I like to run away. Uh, you know, so I like freedom of movement. I, I, don't, I don't like to be restricted. I, I, the idea of something like skinny jeans terrifies me. I just, I just, there's no reason. I like my clothes to be loose. Well, I had this boss and I wore short sleeve shirts, all right? Short sleeve dress shirts with a tie. I, I wore a tie seven days a week for like the first 10 years of being an adult because um, my school required it, my college required it, my work required it, my church required it. So I was always wearing a tie, but I wore short sleeve shirts because I like freedom. I also run really hot. So I, I like, if it is above 70 degrees, my brain starts to melt. I, I, I like the freedom. I had a boss and he cornered me in a, in a hallway on my way to the bathroom. He said, we don't wear, long, we don't wear short sleeve shirts here. I think we do. <laughs> he said, you want to be taken serious as a, you want to be taken serious in this business, which I didn't. Um, but you, you want to be taken serious in this business, you're going to wear long sleeve shirts. Now, now, it sounds weird. It sounds like I'm copying the office, but this did actually happen to me. Um, and, and, and I don't know if any of you ever had an experience with somebody like that. They're like, you know, wear a long sleeve shirt. This is a respectable, you know, kind of a situation. Um, and when I asked why, he said, because I said so. I'm like, this is not going to be a good relationship. This is not, you know, this is not going to be great. Um, a king that inherits his authority, all right, somebody who just believes that they're entitled to authority, doesn't have to prove anything because my dad was king and so I should be king kind of a thing, that takes us down an interesting road. But when somebody is chosen by God and appointed to the purpose, then, then it's not, you're not made, you know, you're not named king because you deserve to be king, you're named king because God has a purpose for you. Now, what happened then as the biblical record evolved, because there are, there are people in the Bible then who are called Meshach, who were called the anointed one, that we may not think deserve to be called the anointed one. Uh, one of them is Cyrus the Persian, Karushka Shah the Shah, all right? uh, Cyrus the king of, the king of kings. Uh, who leads the Achaemenid per Persian Empire, and they, um, they conquer the Babylonians in the 6th century. Um, formidable, formidable person. Um, but he's a pagan. He's not a follower of God. He, he worships, a, he's, his, his religion is something called Zoroastrianism. It's a, it's a, it's a dualistic belief. God and, the, and evil are equals, and they're, they're fighting it over. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, and so... Um, this is, so when we read that in the book of Isaiah, that Cyrus is called the anointed, the Meshach. Well, how is he anointed? He's not anointed because he's Cyrus. He's anointed because God chose him for a purpose. Uh, in the book of Daniel, we have two anointed princes. One who is uh, Jesus, all right? It's the prophecy of Jesus. And the other who is everything that Jesus is not. And he's appointed, he's anointed for a specific purpose and a specific time and a specific role. God chooses him. So anointing is this idea of choice. Now I want to take you to a passage where Jesus deals with this question when he's confronted um, in the synagogue. In the book of Mark, in chapter 12, Jesus deals with, there's a giant gap between 1 Samuel and this anointing in the Bible and Jesus. All right, so the last book of the, New the Old Testament to be written was written around 300 B.C. 
The book of Mark is written in the first century A.D. So there's about 375, 400 years between uh, the two. It depends on whether you're good at math or not. Um, but uh, in, in the book of Mark, in chapter, cha- chapter 12 and verse 35, Jesus is in the temple. And he makes this statement. He says, how can the scribes say that the Meshach, the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord, so how is he son? Uh, now, I'm not going to get into the theology of the statement. I want, you to, I want you to see the question that Jesus asks. Because when Jesus says something like this, he is indicating the teaching that exists in Judaism at the day. In other words, the formative beliefs that are pushing Judaism in this period, what's called Second Temple Judaism. And he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Well, where did the scribes get that? Fortunately for us, we actually know. Um, There are references in the Talmud to this, and he is dealing with their interpretation of Psalm 2. And I'm going to read Psalm 2. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This was a declaration that was made by the kings of Judah. When they took the throne, the descendants of David recited Psalm 2 to their servants. And they said, I am the son of David. I am the anointed of God. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. The rabbis took that statement and they said, therefore, if there is to be a king in the line of David, an anointed one, Meshach, Christos, Christ, if there is to be king, he must be a descendant of David, he must be the son, he must be able to make the declaration of Psalm 2. And Jesus says to them, he catches them in it. He says, so how can Christ be the son of David, right? We look at what Jesus says. He says, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David in himself, the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He says, so if the Christ, if David looking for the Messiah, the anointed one, because remember, David is anointed. He didn't inherit his throne. So he's not looking to pass his throne to an inherited king but ra- or an inherited Messiah, but rather a chosen one. He says, if David himself called him Lord, how is he his son? And all the rabbis get really mad and decide that they want to kill Jesus. Because he takes their logic. He says, you understand 
that if this declaration of the son of David, of his anointing, is meant to reflect the coming king, the Messiah, that king has to be God. Because of the quote, the Lord has said to my Lord, all right? And they get mad because Jesus is saying, if I am the Christ, I am the Lord. I tell people this all the time. I will say it again. When you read in, come Christmas, U.S. News World Report, if that still exists, Time Magazine, come Easter, they're going to do things about Jesus. They're going to talk about how the gospel writers did not believe Jesus was God. That is a bold-faced lie. They have not read the Bible. Jesus continually says, I am God. Now, he doesn't come out and say it, I am God. But he makes statements like this that there is no way that you can interpret it any other way. And this is why they get mad at him. Because how dare he say that he is the Messiah and he is the Lord, that, that he is the coming Messiah, the coming Lord of the Old Testament. Now, why can Jesus say that? This is, this is the moment. I want you to get this. Jesus does not claim to be the Messiah because of who his father is. When is the moment that Jesus is anointed and declared to be the Messiah? It is the moment when he goes to the, to the Jordan River and John the Baptist is baptizing and he says to John, he says, baptize me. And when John baptizes him, when Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes from, from heaven and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is declared to the world to be the chosen of God. Now I want you to understand, he didn't become the chosen of God. Anointing didn't make David worthy of being a king. David was worthy and God used human beings to recognize who David was. And God doesn't make Jesus the son of God. He is already the son of God and God declares him to be that. You cannot read the Bible the way it was written and say anything else. And I'm sorry if that offends you. Jesus believed he was the Son of God, not because God declared him to be the Son of God, but because he was the Son of God. And he said to the world, God has anointed me and declared me to be the Son of God and to be the Messiah, and nothing you say can change that. Now, what did that mean? It meant that Jesus was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. The gospel writers believed that the Messiah will be the God of the Old Testament come to live among mankind and to declare his kingdom and declare his sovereignty and declare a message of hope for the world. That's what they believed. So that's why they write the Gospels the way they do. Being the Christ is being the King. Being the Christ, it means that Jesus, God chose Jesus to be the only way. It is a claim of exclusiveness. In the book of Acts, Luke says there is no other name given under heaven 
by which you can be saved. It is, a, it is a claim of exclusiveness. And I, I know that that's not popular in a world where we define tolerance as make sure you don't offend anybody by saying that you don't accept their beliefs as valid. But the truth is, the writers of the Bible, the writers of the New Testament, believed Jesus was the Son of God. They believed He was the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And that's what being a Christian means. You say, well, I thought being a Christian was about coming to church and doing good things. No, that's being a religious person. Buddhists go to worship and do good things. That doesn't make them Christians. You know, Billy Sunday one time said, you can sit in a garage all day long, it won't make you a car. Uh, the, the idea that, what does it mean to be a Christian? The word Christ is in it. That you declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the King, the Lord, the Sovereign, the Savior, the Redeemer, the hope of all mankind, the solution to our sin, the sent from the Father for our redemption and our salvation, the revealed Word of God. The Bible believes, the authors of the Bible present to us an undeniable statement that Jesus is the answer. He is the one. He is not one of. He is the one. Now here's some good news for us. Christ was chosen because He was worthy. And He chooses us. Watch the pronoun here. Because He is worthy. Not because we are worthy. Not because we deserve to be brought under His anointing. Deserve to be brought under the shelter of His love. Not because we are entitled. Not because we have earned it. But because He is worthy. The, the worthy one. This is why in the book of Revelation, at the end, when Jesus, the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world, is revealed what do the, the, the beings in the heavens declare? They say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He alone is worthy, and therefore those who He redeems, He redeems because of His worth. If, you can say, if you're a Christian this morning, if you came to a time and a place where you said, Jesus is my Savior, I, I, I call on Him for the forgiveness of my sins, I choose to follow Him. If you came to that point, you came to that point because Christ saw you and wanted you to be a part of His work. Not because you deserved it, but because He is worthy. And the worthy Messiah looks out on sinful man and calls us to Him. Jesus said, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to Me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And if you are not a Christian today, you're not ready to make that step, but God is moving. You don't know why. You don't know what's going on. Maybe you don't even know why you showed up at church. You don't know what's drawing you. It is because the worthy one is calling your name. Not because you are worth it, worth it, but because He is worth it. And He is, His love is never ending. His hesed is unbounded. 
His compassion knows no boundaries and no, uh, no limitation. And He is calling to you. We are chosen because He chooses us. He reaches out to us and says, you could never receive, you could never deserve, you could never earn what I am willing to give to you in love and grace. Would you join me in a word of prayer? As we, as we prepare to pray, I just want to challenge you. If you're here and you are, you're, you're at the edge or you're asking questions or you're not, you're just sitting there going, maybe it's, it's I, don't, I don't need this or, or I don't deserve this or, or um, I don't understand the value of it. And yet Jesus is calling you. He's calling you because He sees in you someone He wants to walk with Him. He wants to uh, not, not necessarily transform your life, but transform you. And in His hand, He chooses you and calls you to Himself. You say, well, what do I do? It's a simple moment of saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I accept you as Savior, as Messiah, as Christ. Yes, I accept you as Lord. Yes, I I accept you as the forgiver of my sins. And I say, you are Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Lord. You are my God and my Savior. There's no magic incantation. There's no uh, process or class or, or procedure. It is simply It is really that simple to come to Jesus and say, I will follow you. You are my Savior and my God. Heavenly Father, as we have come together in the name of Jesus to gather and to worship, to look to your word, as we have looked through the scriptures that all come to Jesus, Lord, we thank you that we are not called because we are worthy, but because he is alone is worthy. May your glory and honor and majesty be magnified in all of us as we go forth from this place. We pray this by the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus to you, God, our Father and Creator and Sovereign over all. Amen.